quick slide on the cap for dummies. Um, we start off by just reminding ourselves that when the cap was set up, if you look at the Treaty of Rome, what uh, affected the founders particularly was the food security problem in Europe. They could remember conditions in Europe at the end of the Second World War when people were short of food, had inadequate nutrition. They were concerned about the instability of returns in farming, the classic demand and supply equilibrium problem we find in farming. And low farm incomes relative to the urban population, which they thought could lead to support for extreme right and left wing movements among small farmers. So there are, there are motivations to this policy, but it, it's had some dysfunctional consequences. I mean, in its earlier phase, it created these surpluses, the wine lakes, um, the butter mountains, and so on. <coughs> and it, of course, it particularly had an impact on world trade on, on developing countries uh, when surpluses were dumped on their markets and driving local farmers out of business. What we saw, of course, um, from the late 90s, particularly under Commissioner Franz Fischler, was a, a reorientation, a greater emphasis on multifunctional policy, that's to say, it's not just about maximizing agricultural production, it's about various kinds of public goods, of which one um, is defined as animal welfare. More recently, we've seen a revival of the food security issue. Now, if we look at food safety policy, there's a kind of year zero here, pre and post the experience of the BSE. Mm. Original policy, of course, focused a lot on, on trade barriers. It didn't really have much in the way of coherence or institutional basis. And particularly, I think there wasn't a, a very good mechanism for feeding science into that policy. So what we had following the BSE episode and the threat of the commission being dismissed uh, was a series of changes. I've detailed them in the paper, but what we get at the end of the day is uh, GD Sanko, which we've talked about a lot already. The other thing that uh, comes along and it's Ireland that draws the golden ball out of the drum and gets the, uh, the Food and Veterinary Office uh, located in rural Ireland. Um, but it's got quite limited resources, this office. Um, I mean, it's 183 staff, of which 81 are, are inspectors. So um, you know, it's got quite a lot of tasks to do in relation to animal health and welfare, but its resources to do this <coughs> are really quite limited. Now, in the uh, wake of the BSE crisis, Everyone was saying, right, we've got to learn from the US, we've got to have something like the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, that's a great success. Um, but there was a certain amount of resistance from the food industry to this. Um, I think commissioners started to think, well, you really have got to go for the low-hanging fruit. You don't want a difficult legislative process. They, they argued to themselves that the real problem was a lack of sufficient scientific expertise. Hence, <coughs> what you have, of course, is, is the establishment of an agency, the Palmer gets the prize this time, the European Food Safety Authority. Um, and of course, as we discussed yesterday, this is about risk assessment. It's not about uh, risk management. And the argument was that risk management was a political task. So you had the scientists and the experts doing the assessment, and then the management would be a, a political responsibility. Of course, the problem with all this is that even if, as we were talking about this morning with uh, Bernard, even if this agency does create additional resources, in a sense, it's just one more scientific voice in a debate, it's certainly much less than people originally thought of at the end of the 90s. One thing we've had recently is the EU animal health strategy, originally drawn up in 2007, the action plan came out in 2008, and this year we've had plans announced for a new EU animal health law, um, 
It's a policy which is not just designed to prevent disease outbreaks, but to ensure high standards of animal welfare. And of course, this relates particularly to the, the clause in Lisbon, uh, which is concerned with um, animal welfare. And of course, this concept of One Health, which is put forward by the Commission, reflects an interaction between human and animal health, and in particular, a concern about zoonotic diseases. So the key elements of the approach in this strategy, I'll have to deal with it very quickly here, reduce the number of slaughtered animals. I mean, that you know, doesn't give particularly good publicity um, for the farming industry or, or for the European Union generally. The whole, issue of, the whole issue of vaccination, as we saw in foot and mouth, is very controversial. And it's, you have to decode what they say in the document, really, I mean, because what they're really saying is that you know, member states may kick up a fuss about this if we try and do, do too much. Um, they're certainly trying to encourage prevention. And one of the ways to do that is to, in the context of the funding review for the post-2013 cap, is to have a look at veterinary funding um, I mean, the idea really is, I mean, it's, it's not that the EU is going to provide a lot of money for preventive veterinary work. Uh, the expectation is that member states and farmers will um, cough up. And of course, we've had this big debate in the UK about cost responsibility and sharing. But I think what it is, and why I'm quite positive about it, but, you know, others may be critical, is it's a more proactive approach. And what it links into is, is a vision of the cap the cap being about Europe's comparative advantage being high quality value-added niche production uh, relative to, and obviously it's commodity production as well, and that one of the things which helps to sell um, European uh, produce is the question of animal welfare. This is a, a, a USP for Europe, and of course there are other things coming here like animal welfare labelling, which I was working on when I was seconded to DEFRA last year. I try and talk in the paper about the politics of expertise because that's, that's one of the things I've been very interested in. Um, the question of the tensions between um, epidemiologists and veterinarians in the foot and mouth outbreak. Um, the status of veterinarians who work in the civil service. I mean, I've looked at that both in the UK and Australia. Uh, I think one of the concerns in the UK has been that they feel they've never enjoyed the status that medical civil servants enjoy, that, you know, that doctors, uh, the chief medical officer, etc., within uh, Department of Health, they have a, a lot of clout and public profile, which they as veterinarians in what is now DEFRA don't have. But generalist civil servants, or at least some people within government, have been concerned that these people are too responsive to the profession, that their real loyalty is to the profession, not civil service. So there was a perception that uh, vets were, were seen as being off message. Um, I, when I was working in DEFRA, I was working in an integrated team of generalists and vets, and I think it actually worked quite well. I mean, I, I could talk a bit more about it if people were <coughs> interested, but clearly, because there are also state vets who have a very crucial role out in the field at farm level, as well as those who are engaged in policy issues. Now, of course, all this comes out of our Governance of Livestock Diseases project. That is an interdisciplinary project. It's, um, we have an epidemiologist, we have a, uh, a veterinarian, we have a mathematical modeler, we have an economist, we have myself, and we have a lawyer. So um, we've got quite a range of uh, expertise in this project. I, I should say, of course, it's, 
it's very much work in progress. I mean, for example, our farming schemes are in progress at the moment, and we certainly haven't analysed them yet. Um, but one of the things I've been trying to do in the project is to, is to develop this political diseases model, which I drafted and then was checked out by all my colleagues from their uh, discipline. And what I'm trying to do there is explain why some uh, cattle diseases, we're looking at six cattle diseases in the project, I should say, uh, why some cattle diseases have greater political salience than others. And just very quickly, I mean, you can read it in the paper, but I think links with human health are a very important factor. I mean, whether it, is it a zoonosis or not, that's, that's key. Political factors in terms of um, uh, stakeholder involvement um, in an issue, for example. Management factors, such as can one diagnose the disease? How, how hard is it to diagnose? Economic impacts in terms of the impact on farm income. And then various international effects, which include EU policy, OIE policy, and so on and so forth. Now, I've published about bovine TV elsewhere, and that reference is available, so I decided not to look at that in detail in this paper. Um, there is a EU eradication and monitoring program, but I wouldn't say that compliance with that is onerous for member states. This is a disease which has relatively high public awareness. It's been an issue in the general election campaign. Dave Cameron, uh, when he was in Cornwall, uh, made a speech about badgers and bovine TV, and the Conservatives took three seats from the Liberal Democrats. Um, in Causal relationship? Pardon? Causal relationship? No, I don't think there is. I'm just joking, really. I mean, <laughs> because actually, in the coalition <laughs> negotiations, they, they, both, they both agree. So the Conservatives and the Liberals, they both wanted cold badges. So it's actually a point of agreement for the, the new government if it comes into being. Um, but it's an area in which there's you know, a lot of stakeholder involvement. You've obviously got this problem that the disease is in the wildlife reservoir, so you have stakeholder groups that defend the badger. Very emotive politics. And the normal stakeholder management techniques, which are deployed by, by DEFRA and its predecessors, have failed. But I mean, that's something I talk about in my paper in the British Journal of Politics and International Relations. So I thought I would look instead at bovine the viral diarrhea, which is one of our other diseases. One of my friends said on Facebook, so um, you're going to the States to give a paper on cows getting the runs. <laughs> um, well, it's, 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 much, it's much more serious. Than this. This, is, this is a serious disease, right? I mean, don't think this is just you know, about, about uh, some equivalent of human problems. Um, it's caused by a pestivirus. It's endemic in the European Union, but especially prevalent in, in the Europe, UK and Germany. I mean, basically, the transmission mechanism is spread from cow to fetal calf, but also from persistently infected animals. It is not a zoonosis, right? Okay, let me make this clear. Um, but we think the animal welfare effects are considerable, but we haven't really, I've never really seen them quantified satisfactorily. Um, one of the problems with this disease is in spotting it, there are, there are no clear clinical signs, you know, and you just, you can't pick it up just by observing the animal. What it leads to is a whole series of problems, reduced fertility, increased pregnancy losses, and immunosuppression, which in turn, of course, can lead to other problems, and ultimately, it will lead to uh, mucosal disease, which is very unpleasant and is, is fatal for the animal, so it is, it is quite serious. Um, what are the control strategies? Well. There are vaccines available, they're not particularly expensive, but of course, if you just vaccinate and you don't identify and remove the persistently infected animals, you're not going to uh, achieve anything. Eradication has been achieved in Norway. Uh, the Scottish government, which is, is trying to uh, 
um, you know, Pierre Rouault is saying, is, is trying to uh, develop a broader political space for itself, um, is, is trying to carve out a space in animal health and, and get some advantage for Scotland in relation to the rest of the UK. So it's considering it as part of its so-called quiet revolution and the devolution to have an eradication strategy in Scotland for, for this disease. But the EU, I mean, the EU obviously thought that there was something to concern here because they did fund a, a thematic network, which did some quite interesting work, and it's being listed by the OIE as a priority disease. So how does one solve this? Um, is this something one solves by government intervention? Or, I mean, I've tried to apply instead in the paper some of the work of Elena Ostrom, the, the Nobel laureate. Um, should this be a, one of those cases where herders seek cooperative solutions among themselves? Um, because there are relatively low information and enforcement costs. These raw conditions you know, that would help this. Uh, norms of reciprocity and trust that can be used as initial social capital and you've got relatively small and, and stable groups involved. So, um, this has actually worked on the, the Orkney Islands. The Orkney Islands are a, a group of islands to the north of, of Scotland, um, little democratic seat, um, which had very high local social capital. They have a, a lot of cattle and the, you know, very close sort of informal networks. Consequence is, you know, very, few free rider problems in Orkney because of the, the <coughs> pressure, social pressure which is put on people to take part. So they're now moving on, having succeeded in Orkney with this scheme, to have a scheme there for yeoman disease. And you see if they can tackle yeoman disease. So um, there's a much more ambitious scheme underway in the east of England, and there's also a scheme that's been developed in, in Somerset. The one problem is that if you, if you were sort of an early adopter, and if you eliminate BVD from your herd, you may gain a competitive advantage, but there are some sort of economics type issues here. Now, what we've seen <coughs> in the last year or two um, is the revival of the food security discourse. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we had this big spike in food prices. Um, I mean, there are long-term concerns because about the possible impact of climate change on food production, particularly in terms of water. Um, increases in demand from emerging countries, land supply not um, increasing. So, I mean, there is, there is a debate going on within Europe. Uh, the G21 group, led by France, which is to say, that's to say all member states except Malta, Cyprus, and the four northern reform states, the UK, Netherlands, Denmark, and Sweden, um, are campaigning to revert to a more productionist uh, interpretation of the cap. But of course, one of the cases you can make for having a single farm payment for farmers, and it's certainly one that's being used by the British NFU, is that it can in part be justified by higher animal welfare standards. Because if you're asking farmers to adhere to higher standards than elsewhere in the world, this creates a case for giving them some sort of uh, general subsidy. It is argued. Plus, of course, there's this, this marketing advantage that you can secure um, if you can demonstrate that your uh, meat is produced higher welfare standards. What I think there is quite a lot of in this area is what I call crisis politics. In other words, if we look at the cases of BSE and um, foot and mouth, you know, what we see is an atmosphere of crisis. That crisis generates changes in institutional structures, um, <coughs> you know, uh, reorganization of, of 
departments at both European and member state level. When, of course, you're, you have success, I mean, when a disease is, is contained, or at least up to now, we've been quite successful with blue tongue, and whether we will go on being successful is a, an interesting question, I think, is because far fewer people are vaccinating. Then, of course, it falls off the political agenda. You know, I mean, if blue tongue had really arrived in a big way in the UK, you know, there would be a tremendous row about it, but of course it hasn't. So what we've seen is that the, the BSC, the human health impacts there, led to a very major shake-up of decision-making processes and mechanisms at the European level. Of course, if, when we look at endemic disease like bovine TB, then I think you're up against rather different challenges in terms of how you develop an effective response. I mean, in our project, we're just looking at endemic diseases um, because they have been relatively neglected in the uh, political debate. So what are the dilemmas for the EU? I think the EU is attempting, well, quite clearly, to adopt a more systematic approach to these issues. That's why we've got the, um, the strategy and the proposed legislation. But of course, as we know, and as we've discussed over the last uh, 24 hours, enforcement and implementation resources largely rests with the member states. So you're reliant on the member states to actually put this out into effect. And of course, at the moment, one of the problems for the member states, given the fiscal crisis, is they don't have a lot of money um, to spend on any new projects. So I don't think this process of developing an EU animal health law is going to be an easy or straightforward one. But I think it'll be an interesting process to follow uh, for someone over the next few years who is looking for a, a research project. Okay, so thanks for listening. Um, we've got a website if you want to find more out about the governance of livestock diseases project where you can read some of our other papers and 